You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Thankful for that truth today. We can cast all of our care on the Lord, for He careth for us, as we find in 1 Peter. Grateful for that song. Thank you, ladies, for that. One thing that I have trouble keeping up with is the ever-changing lingo of young people. I figured that might catch your attention. I worked with teenagers for a number of years, and as hard as I tried, I could never crack the code, especially when they're texting and and they've got shorthand for all of these things. But even in just the words that they, that they use, and, and every generation has their slang terms. When, when I was a kid, uh, I, when I was in the 80s, a child of the 80s, um, I used to say radical, or rad for short, if you're really cool. A couple of generations before me, that word would have been translated groovy. And now the term is lit. I have no idea why. A few years back, we had guys in our youth group that would say YOLO, which is, stands for you only live once, and it took me a while to realize they weren't talking about a yo-yo, and I, I thought yo-yos were coming back, and I made for a few awkward conversations with the teen guys. Now, I can, I can relate to one word that is increasingly used, and that's the word hangry. Maybe you've heard the word hangry. It means you're both hungry and angry, which might be synonymous anyway, either way. Now, one phrase, though, that I've noticed, and I I don't make light of all that, Uh, I try to get to a point here, but one phrase that I've noticed that's being used more and more is, I feel like. Have you heard that one? I feel like. It seems like everyone's using it. And just listen to young people talk, and you'll hear it a lot. I feel like I saw them there. Or, I I feel like I've heard this song. I I feel like this is the answer to the math problem. Yeah, I think you get the drift. The phrase has essentially become the replacement for I think. No one says I think anymore. They're saying I feel like. And in all honesty, there may not be a phrase that more accurately reflects our culture. I feel like sums up our tendency, number one, to elevate emotions above truth. And number two, place more emphasis on individual perspective rather than objective reality. Older phrases that could be used interchangeably with I feel like, these days, well, it, well, it used to be follow your heart. If you just believe in yourself, follow your heart and you can do it. And that means whatever you feel means it's right for you. And now they're saying live your truth. Live your truth. Meaning what's true to you is the most valid perspective. They say things like you do you. And that means embrace whatever you think most expresses your true self. They all mean the same thing. I feel like, live your truth, you do you. All of those summarize the fact that absolute truth has been diminished and individual perspective has been elevated. It's no longer about objective truth. If you try to declare something to be absolute in this day and age, people respond with outrage. They say, you can't force your truth on me That's not my truth. Well, since individualism, as I said before, is now the highest virtue, what a person considers to be true is now truth. 
There's no right or wrong. There's no absolute except what I decide. And it's not just I feel like. Now it is I feel like loudly. It's not just what I want to believe. It's that I can say what I believe. I feel like. And I can say it loudly because that's more noble. In other words, let the world know what you feel like. Let the world know what your truth is. Be loud. Be confident in yourself. Don't hold back. Live it loud. Live it proud. Follow your heart. You do you. Live your truth. All of these seem like a great idea until you realize that defining your own truth doesn't answer life's most important questions. It seems noble until you start looking at the steady climb of suicide rates in recent years. Look at them. Uh, Look at the, the latest numbers of those suffering from depression and the highest age range is those 18 to 25 now. The prescription drug epidemic, the addiction to prescription drugs, it's through the roof now. See, the truth is, as much as we desire to find everything that we need in ourselves, within ourselves, it doesn't take long to realize human beings don't have all the answers in themselves. Searching inside yourself does not deliver on its promise to give you what you need. And as a matter of fact, according to 1 John 3, we'll see it today, when we operate with this I feel like mindset, it actually causes real damage to our spiritual lives. Those that claim that living your truth will result in your most confident, assured self have strong opposition here in God's word in 1 John 3. And John's been teaching the the readers how, how to know that you're saved and what evidence to look for. And to this point, it's been things like obedience, it's been things like maturity, it's been righteous living, and what he's saying is that our actions reveal what we truly are. You can't deny it, you can't say you're one thing, and and then your actions come along and say another, and believe what you're saying, your actions speak louder than your words, that's John's primary point. If the evidence is missing, then folks, it's time for an examination, that's what he's trying to get to, and by the time we get to chapter 3, John's attention has turned to love. And it starts, and we can, I'd love to go back because I enjoyed preaching at the beginning of chapter 3. What Behold, what manner of love God has bestowed upon us. That God in his, in his great sovereignty and his eternal love, that he could take that love which is unconditional and sacrificial and it never changes. And it's not whether or not someone earns it. It's unconditional agape love. That he could take that love and implant it in the hearts of his children. And he gives us the opportunity to love like he loves. I mean, it's a miracle. It's amazing that he could do that. And that's what John's been talking about. He talks about how God has taken that miraculous agape love and he's implanted it in us. And now we are to love with the same love that God loves. That's what we talked about last week is that we have this love shed abroad in our hearts and brotherly love should be the evidence of our salvation. But when we don't love as we should, we, t- we tend toward things like jealousy. Instead of love, we're jealous. We tend to things, toward things like hatred. We tend to express uh, things like indifference rather than love. If we don't embrace the fact that God has given us the capacity to love with his unconditional love, we find ourselves settling for far less. And so that's the thought that brings us to verse 18 when he says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. 
This refers to the way we love the brethren. What he's saying is if it's real, it will show up. If it's real, it won't just be lip service. If you are truly a part of the family, then the family trait will show up in the way that you love others. It will be evident in our actions. And John is talking here about love in action. Then he says in verse 19, And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Hereby means by this. This verse connects the thoughts in verse 18. And what he's saying is by this love, this this love that is in action, this love that is evidence, we will know that it's real. The evidence of our actions reveals what we truly are. And as as what we are becomes apparent, then our hearts are assured before God. Read it again. And hereby, this love, this love in action, hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Assure here means to persuade. It means to give confidence to. So the outward evidence, so I want you to understand what John is saying is the outward evidence of love, not just what you say, but what you do. Not jealousy, not hatred, not indifference, but sacrificial love that we show toward each other, toward our brothers, toward our sisters, that sacrificial love is the evidence that assures our hearts. That's the evidence that persuades us. That is the evidence that gives us confidence that we are part of the family. That's where the assurance comes from. So the outward evidence persuades or assures us of our position. And this matter of assurance is so important. That's why we sing Blessed Assurance today. Because I knew what I was preaching and I get to pick the songs. So, so many people struggle with knowing their position. And by that I mean they struggle knowing their position in Christ. And some in here may have in times past, maybe even in, in the present time, you struggle. I remember as a teenager, struggling as a young man with assurance of my salvation. And going through that and, and finally getting it settled... It's a matter that's important enough that we've all either experienced it or we've seen people that are going through it, um, but we know that it's important because John deals with it. God, God knew that this would be something that needs to be dealt with, and this is a different matter than eternal security, by the way. Eternal life, eternal security, eternal is eternal life. It means it's permanent. Before we move forward with the thought of assurance, I think it's good for us to understand the Bible clearly teaches that salvation is not temporary. Once a person is saved, it cannot be lost. And I go to Jesus Christ's own words in John 10. He says, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. If you allow that visual of Jesus Christ's hand holding us and then his Father's hand holding his hand, that makes you think when Jesus Christ says they shall never perish, he meant it. We have eternal life, folks. If you've been saved, I, I in no way want to cast doubt on the fact that God can keep you because he can. And we live in a culture that, that tends to tell us that there are some, if you want to stay saved, you've got to keep doing works to keep it. That's not the case at all. You either have religion of do or done, and the do religion say, I've got to keep my end of the bargain to keep this gift going, or you believe that Jesus Christ already did the work and it's done for you. 
We have eternal security. We have double security through Christ and God by holding us. And Jesus Christ said we will never perish. And I bring that up because it's foundational to the doctrine of assurance. But it's not the same. We, we don't have to worry about God doing his part. We don't have to worry about us working to do our part. Once we're saved, we're saved. But it is possible to doubt that position. It's possible to not know. Assurance is important. God obviously wanted us to be assured because he writes about it. Most of John's book is dedicated on how to know that somebody is saved. If we doubt our standing with God, listen, we cannot be as close to God as we should. We, we cannot be as content with God as we should. And we cannot be as effective for God as we should. It affects every part of us. If you have doubts, you cannot be all that you're supposed to be for God. And much, I mean, and even more so, it's miserable. So to this point, much of what John has dealt with is external evidence. As we've already talked about, he talks about things like obedience, walking in the light. He talks about maturity. He talks about brotherly love. He talks about righteousness. All of those are things that are outward evidences. And to this point, that's what he's focused on. But now he gets more personal. Now he deals with a matter that isn't just about what others can see. John talks about something personal. He brings up the heart. Remember what we talked about at the beginning, the heart, our emotions, live your truth, follow your heart, you be you, I feel like, find confidence, your greatest confidence inside yourself. Well, it's that concept that John starts to deal with, only it's not nearly as positive as the culture will make you think. See, look at verses 19 through 21. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him for if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. In those three verses, John mentions the heart four times. It's often said that the heart is the seat of emotions. It's the center of a person's life. The heart encompasses the mind and the will and the emotions. It also refers to our conscience. Our heart is the central part of us that thinks and desires and feels. It's the part of us that has the, the emotions and the will and the thinking. And according to these verses, our hearts, though, also condemn us. And that's not what you hear very often, is it? You don't hear, you say you hear follow your heart, but you don't hear very often be careful of your heart because it will condemn you. That's not nearly as popular, is it? But this is where we see the departure from the cultural view of our heart and a biblical view of our heart. See, the culture says, follow your heart. It won't lead you astray. If you just, you be you, you will be happy. You'll be content. What you feel inside is the true you. Just go with that. Follow your feelings and you'll finally be the most confident, satisfied, content version of yourself possible. But according to John, letting your heart do the leading doesn't give you the confidence the world says it does. See, our hearts, number one, our hearts are better at condemnation than confidence. Our hearts are better at condemnation than confidence. So if I say this now, if I say name, name five failures in your life, your five big failures, name them. It probably would not take us long, at least it wouldn't for me, to name five. They're, those are easy. But if I was to again come back and say, now name the five times that God has given you victory in your life. Suddenly it's a little bit more difficult. 
And that proves the point that John is making here in that it is easy for us, easier for us to focus on our failures than it is to focus on the facts. That's what John is saying. We've all sinned, we've all failed, we've all fallen short of God's glory, and our natural tendency is to focus on those shortcomings. Our hearts are better at finding fault and blaming and accusing and reminding us of our failures. That's what condemnation means. Our hearts accuse us. Our hearts find fault. I heard an illustration about a man that came to his pastor and he was troubled about his salvation. And he he wasn't sure really how great of a sinner that he was. So his pastor said, what I want you to do is go home and go to your barn door. and, And every time that you sin, I want you to nail a nail in your barn door. So it didn't take long before the man comes back to the pastor and says, the, the, the barn door is completely full of nails. And the pastor said, that's a visual, an image of our sin before God. I wanted you to see your sin before God so that you could know how much of a sinner you really are. And that man, because of that visual image, the pastor was able to lead him to Christ because of all the nails on the door. So then the pastor said, well, now I want you to change things a little bit. I want you to go back. And now every time that you sin and you confess your sin and God forgives you of your sin, I want you to take a nail out of the door. And so he did. And it took him a little bit. I don't know how long it took, but it it took him a, a, a short time. He comes back and he says, "Okay, all the nails are back out of the door. And the pastor said, isn't it wonderful? Isn't, what a wonderful image. Isn't that great? And the man that should have said, yeah, that's wonderful. He said, no, not really. And the pastor said, why? He said, because the, the door has holes all over it now. See, that, that really is a good image, a good visual of the way that we live, though. You see, we've sinned multiple times, and yet when we confess and God forgives, he removes the nails from the door. But instead of focusing on the fact that all the nails are now out of the door, all we can focus on, our hearts can focus on, is the fact that now it's full of holes. When we should be focused on forgiveness, by nature, we tend to focus on the failures, Our hearts condemn us in spite of our position in Christ like some great accuser that walks around and constantly beating us over the head about our sin. Uh, Our hearts can't seem to let it go. It focuses on the failures instead of the facts. Now, as a balance to this this morning, don't get me wrong, I'm not standing up here preaching a message that say your sin is okay and you need to just move on, it's no big deal. It is a big deal, but the big deal is the fact that Jesus Christ died on a cross to forgive you every time you do it. It's good for self-examination to go back and examine our failures and and ask, why did I sin in that area? What can I do to avoid it? Self-examination is good. It's necessary But it is not helpful to dwell on your past sins and become so focused on them that you allow guilt to drive you into depression. And this is hard. It's hard for some people to do. I know a lot of people that are perfectionists. Anytime they fail, it's the end of the world. Every time they mess up, it's all they can think about. They can't move on. They dwell on how they didn't get it right rather than the fact that if they confess sin, God forgives them. 
I know some that have a very sensitive conscience and every time they fail, they just struggle to get over the failure due to guilt. And they're not focusing on the fact that when they confess, God forgives their sin. They're focusing on the holes in the door. But consider the source of feeling in those. I I feel like I should be able to do better than this. I feel like I'm guilty. I feel guilty for letting God down. Listen, we should strive to live for God. We should strive to be righteous. We should have a sensitive conscience to God's chastening. But if we allow ourselves to be led by our feelings of guilt and inadequacy, there's no end to our guilt. There's no end to our inadequacy. And what we're doing is handing our hearts the reins to our assurance. We are letting our hearts be in charge of how confident we are in our position. And it's a miserable life to focus more on our failures and less on what God has done in our lives. Salvation, listen, salvation cleared the slate. When we confess, forgiveness pulls every nail out of the barn door. But your heart just sees the holes. Seems like it can't look past them. And that's the tendency of I feel like. Since our hearts are better at condemnation than confidence, then when our hearts condemn us, we must, number two, rest on that which actually provides assurance. We've got to turn to something else besides our hearts. Because according to John, according to past experience in life, my heart doesn't do it for me. As much as the world says, your heart will lead you in the right direction, no, my heart leads me astray. The person troubled by doubt and self-condemnation must, in those moments of doubt and self-condemnation, confront himself or confront herself with the fact of what they know to be true, not how they feel about it. See, assurance is based on what we know about God's work in our lives. Assurance, according to John, it's based on what we know about God's work in our lives. Again, in 19 and 20, and hereby we know that we are of the truth. What's he talking about? He's talking about love. He's talking about the evidence of God's work in our life. He says, hereby, by that love, we know that we're of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. By this, again, refers to that love, the practical love, the evidence. And what John is saying, and listen, What John is saying is when you're dealing with doubt and self-condemnation, don't focus on I feel like. Focus on the times that God's love has been evident in your life towards someone else. That's literally what John is saying. He's saying that is the evidence. And I know it may not seem significant, and I know it may not seem like that's really all that valid, but listen, what John is doing is taking it out of the court of our feelings and putting in something tangible. He's taking it away from the subjective and he's putting it into the objective. Let those acts of sacrificial love toward brethren be that which assures you of of being in the truth. But here comes the problem. See, some of us can't think of many deeds of love. And that is a problem. Because if we don't have evidence, then we need to examine. And I'm not saying that that, that if you can't think of acts of love off the top of your head, that you're not saved. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that, that if they're not right there, we should examine. And I think, though, we overthink it because the acts of love of God working in our heart, I mean, it happens probably more than we think it does. 
in our interactions with other people, with our brotherly love, with our sacrificial giving at times. But that objective evidence is what he's saying is that's better than a heart that only sees the shortcomings. If you follow your heart, live your truth, feel like you'll be a doubter. Look for the evidence in your life. Look for the times that God has worked through you. It's much more solid than how you feel. See, if you can't, though, think of deeds of love, examine. God's love, as we heard last week, it should result in us loving other people. It could be that you're self-focused. Maybe, maybe you just miss opportunities because a lot of people come to church and they look for ways to be blessed. It, it, they say, if it's not this way, I'm out. I prefer to be, to be like this and I won't be happy. It needs to be what I prefer. I'm here to be blessed. No, the evidence of love says, how can God use me to be a blessing in this church with my brethren? Rest on the evidence that's been there, not the feelings that aren't, though. We've got to be careful uh, we need to examine, but we've got to be careful to overthink this. I was thinking about what are the, what are the evidences of love? Well, I know that somebody can give out of a heart that's just habit. But listen, the way that God's people give, and I'm specifically thinking the way that God's pe- people give at Eastside Baptist Church, that's an evidence of your love for God. That's an evidence of your love for other people. I think about all the ways that people serve at Eastside Baptist Church. I think about all those teaching the children in the back. I think about the late nights cleaning the kitchen or serving people. I think about all the evidences of love. And don't just assume that all those are just habit or going through the motion. There's plenty of evidence of love. And there's evidence of love in your life. If you're a child of God, you can't help it. It's there. And I know maybe you were thinking that there would be something more significant, but that's what John is telling us. He's he's trying to simplify it for us because our hearts condemn us and they make it pretty, it makes it pretty confusing. No, just go to the evidence. Look at the evidence in your life. Assurance is based on what we know God has worked in us, but it's also based on what God knows about us. Chapter three, verse 20, in the end it says, for God condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Commentator James Boyce, he wrote that what John is saying is, whatever our hearts may say, God knows us better than even we ourselves do and nevertheless, listen, has acquitted us. Therefore, we should reassure ourselves by his judgment, which alone is trustworthy and refuse to trust our own. See, what John and James Boyce are saying is, your heart can't be trusted. Stop looking to that for your confidence. Stop looking to that for your assurance. There's a more reliable source, and that more reliable source is what God has done for us, what he tells us in his word. I read in Colossians 2 this week, it says that God has forgiven us of all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. When you start to think about the evidence of what God knows about you, what God has done for you, then it helps with our doubting. When you're doubting, remember salvation and forgiveness are objective transactions. It's an objective truth. It it has no bearing, my feelings have no bearing on the transaction that was made between God the Father and God the Son on the cross. The only thing that is affected in my life is whether or not I accept the payment. It's a transaction between the Father and the Son. And it's good for us to remember that because our hearts condemn us, so we need to let the fact that God is greater than our hearts 
be our assurance. Let the fact, not I feel like, let the fact that God justified you, which means he declared you righteous, let that be your assurance. Let the fact that he blotted out that handwriting of ordinances that was against you, let that be your assurance. Let the fact that his blood can cover our sins, wash away our sins, let that be our assurance. What I'm saying today is stop focusing on your feelings and focus on the facts. Listen, if you've sinned, confess it. Be right with God. But an introspective dwelling on sin leads to guilt, depression, desperation, and ultimately a lack of assurance due to a a condemning heart. Assurance comes when we focus on facts, not feelings. If a holy God, who has a much higher standard than any of us do when it comes to holiness, if a holy God says, and he's greater than our heart, if a holy God says that, that when we are saved, he blotted out that handwriting of ordinances against us then who am I to bring my heart back into it and override what he says if a holy God whose standard of holiness is much higher than mine and who is greater than our hearts and knows all things if he's willing to declare your sin forgiven then why can't you Your heart represents all the fluctuations of our emotions and thoughts and moods and feelings. To subject something as important as assurance to your heart is like handing your car keys to a criminal. It's like handing your car keys to a criminal and expecting that the criminal will take care of your possession. Saying, oh yeah, here you go, here's my car keys or here's my house keys. Or here's something important to me. When that criminal only wants your worst, you can't trust them. They'll take advantage of you. They can't be left alone or unsupervised. No, take that key and hand it to someone you trust. Hand it to a spouse. Hand it to uh, your mom or dad. Hand it to a family member or your best friend. Because if handing it to our heart means that we will waver, don't hand the keys of the assurance to something as shaky as your heart. And here's why, here's where we come to the big idea here today, and that is that confidence can only be as strong as the object in which it trusts. Confidence can only be as strong as the object that it trusts. I'm going to give you an illustration today. Uh, Brother Chad, would you mind coming up here? And Brother Josh Collins, come up here, and, and Jacob, you could as well. Have you just come step right up here, and Brother Chad and Brother Josh, you can kind of step back, and I'm going to have Jacob be the guinea pig, okay? He's an intern, so he, I can put his life at risk. It's okay. <laughs> so I, have you ever heard of a trust fall before? Okay, so this is going to be fun, okay? So Jacob, if you would just stand right here, and then Brother Chad, if you come stand be, behind him, a trust fall is basically that the person here trusts that the person there is physically capable of catching him in, in a fall. Okay, uh, you've heard this before. And so I'd like to try this. So Jacob, turn around and look at Brother Chad. Okay, does he look capable of handling you if you were to fall backwards? Okay, all right, so we're going to do this. And I, I want to count down from everybody. We're going to say three, two, one, 
and go, and if someone wants to get their phone out and record it, that's fine, okay? So, are you ready? Here we go. Three, two, one, fall. Okay, excellent. Do it again. Okay? So, let me just remind you that our confidence can only be as strong as the object in which we trust. So, again, we'll do it again. Three, two, one, go. Okay, good. Now, I'd like you to take your tie and blindfold. No, just kidding. I'm not going to make you do that, okay? So, Brother Chad, if you'd step back. Now, this is Josh Collins. Actually, actually, you step out of the way. Brother Chad, you come here. Okay? So, our confidence can only be as strong as the object in which it trusts. So, Brother Chad, I want you to look at Josh. And I want you to evaluate his ability to catch you in a trust fall. Little. Little, little. Okay, well, should we try this? I mean, are you willing to try this? Now, if Jacob and I were behind you, would you trust us? But, but Josh, no. Not really. Okay, I'm sorry, Josh. So, you guys, thank you. You can go, go ahead and go down. And I know that's a silly illustration, but your confidence is only as strong as the object in which it trusts. So let's compare the two. What John is talking about is our hearts. So you tell me, how trustworthy is your heart? Are you going to place the keys of your assurance in the hands of something as shaky as your heart? Because Jeremiah 17, 9, as opposed to what our culture says, it says the heart is deceitful above all things, It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? In other words, you cannot trust it because it's a liar and it's wicked. And you say, well, I can't believe you'd say that about our hearts. Well, the culture says something different. It always has, but God's word says something clear about the heart that you cannot trust it. So let me ask you today then, that's where you're going to turn for your truth? That's where you're going to say, no, I'm going to do me. And in my heart, this is what I am, so I'm going to embrace that. If you think that your heart leading you to do your truth, if you think that will give you any kind of confidence, according to God's word, it doesn't touch confidence. It actually touches condemnation. So we embrace what our heart says, and we say, yes, we'll follow this truth, and I'll place the keys of my assurance inside something like that. And it doesn't give me confidence, it gives me condemnation. That's what we're going to lead or trust to lead us, our hearts? If that's the description of my heart, that it's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, are you sure that operating with a feel-like mindset is going to end well for you? It's like handing your keys to a criminal. No, listen, your confidence, your assurance can only be as strong as the object in which it trusts. And it's time for us to stop trusting our feelings and start trusting the facts. If God's word says assurance comes from evidence of love in our life, then I have to believe that God's word is real. Stop listening to feelings. Trust his word. We could read the rest of this passage, and we don't have time today, but we could see what our assurance is connected to, and we could see that our assurance is connected to answered prayer. And you say, well, that seems like a strange thing to connect to assurance. No, if, if we have assurance and we are real as we should be, The Bible says when we ask God, he'll answer our prayers. 
So let that be part of the examination today. Uh, part of the uh, assurance is connected then to obedience to God's commandment. Again, rest in this passage, in verse 22, whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Verse 23, it connects assurance to our faith in Christ and again, love for brothers. And this is his commandment, verse 23, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Verse 24, it says, and he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him and he in him. And hereby, here is that, there's that word again, hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given us. So again, our assurance is not connected. As we read through this, we see about commandments and we see, we see answered prayer. We see faith in Christ and we see knowledge of abiding and, and how that's confirmed by the Holy Spirit. But not once in this passage, not once anywhere do you see that our feelings and our emotions and self-truth and you doing you will increase our confidence. Not at all. It's not found. As a matter of fact, according to John, operating that like that leads to condemnation, not confidence. See, the facts of God's work in you and what God knows about you, those are the sources of assurance. Not I feel like, not that's my truth. No, what does God's word say? How you feel or what God says? Which do you trust more? Now, maybe it's time that we stop trusting in our feelings because our feelings fluctuate. Listen, if my feeler, feelings are the markers, I'd be all over the place. And I was trying to think of what it would be like. It, it's, it's kind of like trying to thread a needle on a roller coaster. See, my feelings, my heart, it's doing this all the time. It's deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. It's up and down. I don't even know what direction. Sometimes I wake up. I have no idea why I'm in the mood I'm in. My wife doesn't either, and I feel sorry for her. And all the while, I'm trying to thread the needle on a roller coaster. That's what it's like when you're operating your life based on your feelings. You'll never get done what you're supposed to get done. You'll not be what you're supposed to be. Our emotions and feelings and desires change too much to be trusted. We can't trust our deceitful hearts to provide the right answers. Stop elevating feelings over reality. And we say, well, that's true in other areas. I think about finances. If you operate based on your feelings and not what you literally have in the bank account, how long is that going to work out well for you? I think about parenting, and I know sometimes it feels, parents, doesn't it, like our feelings are, I'm not doing any good with this child. They're not getting it. I'm not sure what's going to happen in the end. This is not worth it. No, we have to operate based on God's truth, on God's word, and trust what he says rather than the fluctuation of the moment. I think about a church philosophy. Here at Eastside Baptist Church, we're careful not to condemn emotions because I think emotions are a natural response to God. We should have emotion because of what God has done for us. But I want you to notice the order. It's not emotion for emotion's sake. It's emotion in response to truth. It always starts with truth. And if we ever get to the place as a church that we operate based on our feelings and based on emotions rather than truth, it's a roller coaster. And there's no telling where we're going to end up. In following God, do we always feel like coming to church? Don't say no, it'll hurt my feelings. 
No, we don't. Sometimes I don't either. I don't always feel like serving. Maybe we don't always feel like being in our place. We don't always feel like doing right. I wish we did, but our hearts. And if I let my heart guide me in those down moments, the fluctuating moments, then I'll end up in a mess. I have to operate something more certain, more stable, and that is the truth. That is what God says, what God knows about me, what his word says. See, our feelings are up and down. We can't trust them. It's time to stop trusting feelings and focus on the facts. Focus on the facts, not our failures. And it's with this mindset that we find assurance. Somebody told D.L. Moody once he was worried because he didn't feel saved. And, and Moody said, or asked, was Noah safe in the ark? And the man said, certainly he was. And Moody said, what made him safe? His feelings or the ark? See, your feelings aren't strong enough to give you confidence, but you have a father. And he gave you his word, and they certainly are. And your confidence can only be as strong as that in which you're placing your trust. So where do you turn for confidence? Where do you turn for assurance? Your feelings or the facts? See, according to John, if we operate like our culture, you do you, live your truth, that's my truth, I feel like it leads to condemnation. The facts lead to confidence. Which one are you trusting in? Let's everyone stand together. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.